You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson with NM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at Let's Talk gmail.com, and of course, I will answer as many as I can. You know, we are getting close to Passover, it is right around the corner. And it was interesting. I don't know if I mentioned this fact a couple weeks ago. Um, so when a, in, in school, getting ready for Passover is a big deal. We maybe the original, you know, Passover Seder where we did all kinds of, and we still do, we had all these different unusual things till we eat the meal and the dipping and the vegetables and the questions and the cups of wine. It's a whole different kind of meal. And the whole point is we want our children to ask questions. And I think, you know, when they first started out, I, you know, they taught the parents what to do, and the kids were like, whoa, what's going on? Now the kids all know what's going on because we prep them beforehand, and we teach them songs, and we give them stuff to say and questions to ask. It's a whole big deal. One of the things we happen to do is we teach them the four questions in a foreign language. We teach them the four questions in Yiddish. Why? Well, I don't know why. I was taught it in Yiddish, and my parents were probably taught it in Yiddish. Even though I don't think so. Uh, but anyways, schools have always, because in Europe, the grandparents spoke Yiddish, and that's how they said the four questions. So that's how our children say the four questions. So a boy said, but no one speaks Yiddish in my house. Like, what's the point? I said, very, very good question. I said, I think the answer is that Yiddish reminds us of our past. Yiddish reminds us of what happened earlier generations. And Passover is the same thing. We want the earlier generations to talk to the children. The earlier generations talk to their children. We talk to our children to continue to pass along all these beautiful things about Passover and about all the things we know. And it's a, it's a chain. It's an ongoing chain. As a matter of fact, uh, my wife's father actually is going to join us for Passover. That hasn't happened in a long time. And we'll take advantage because there's nothing like the grandfather. And for my grandchildren will be there. So the great-grandfather talking to great-grandchildren, that chain, or we say in Hebrew, the Messorah is a beautiful thing to see, a beautiful thing to watch. And we are looking very, very forward to Passover coming up right around the corner. Two weeks, as a matter of fact. So we started talking in the last show about Saras. So I wasn't sure where I wanted to start. We're going to sort of jump to the end of the Torah portion. And it talks about if a house gets Saras. So a very unusual verse. The language is, I will place a Saras on your house. Now, there's only the land of Israel. And it had to be stone and like a cement and wood, and it's uh, 
And I can't remember, if, I don't think it was plaster. There's a whole bunch of rules and regulations. Not every house, our modern houses would never qualify for this. But the problem is the language of I will place a terrace on the house pretty much means that God's doing it. Now, we talked in the last show, the reason Saras is coming is a person's a slanderer, he doesn't talk nicely, um, he talks about people, he tries to hurt people. Um, so that means I'm a bad guy. Right? I did something wrong. I have to correct something I've done wrong. So why why is the Torah telling me my house is going to get Saras? It sounds like a good thing. That's the problem. So Rashi says, very, very famous Rashi, when the Jewish people went through the Red Sea, so the the nations heard, and they knew about all the prophecies. In those days, they knew. So they knew from Abraham that the Jewish people were going to a land not, that wasn't theirs. That ended up being Egypt. They're going to be slaves. They're going to come out of Egypt. And after they come out of Egypt, they're going to march towards the land of Israel. And they're going to conquer the land of Israel. So the nations living in Israel understood if God just did all these miracles and took the Jewish people out, God's on his way. Jewish people are on their way. We're, we're finished. So they hid their gold and silver and diamonds in the walls of their houses and, and they cemented it back in. That way, when the country gets invaded, they won't find the gold and silver so fast. That was the plan. So therefore, God says, you think you can hide your gold and silver? I have this thing called saras on a house. I'm going to put these marks in the house. The rule is that you, the coin will come, he'll look at it, and he'll lock up the house for a week, and after the second week, he's going to break apart the wall, and they're going to find the gold and silver. So uh, I, you can't fool God. God will give that gold and silver. Therefore, it ends up that saras on a house could be a good thing. Okay. So very interesting. Um, if Yael Galinsky says like this, like, w- why is this the way God wants to do it? You know what I mean? The same way God can make a miracle and he's putting this funny discoloration on your walls that you can't scrub off. So instead of that miracle, just let the wall collapse. Right? Or maybe just hang up a sign, big arrow. Torah could say that when you see an arrow it's pointing to hidden gold in a house. Like, what exactly is the difference between God putting on this this uh, this tzara'as, this leprosy on the house, so that you have to go through the whole suffering, you have to empty out the house and clean out the house, embarrass the neighbors, and the coin has to come down, and you got to figure out what's going on, and they lock up the house for a week. Why do you need that process? Like, why? Very simple. Let God have a big red arrow pointing at a spot in the wall and the Torah will say, if you see a red arrow on your wall, break it open because you will find gold and silver. Like, wouldn't that be much easier? Like, come on. So Jan Glinsky says, very interesting. As a person needs to know, in this world, not everything is what it seems. We see one thing, and we think we got the picture, and in truth, we don't see anything. In other words, the person sees the tzara'as on his house. He's besides himself. Why is God doing this to me? I'm really a good person. Why should I have to suffer? And where am I going to put the kids? And I'm out of my house. And I have to take everything out of my house. And what if it rains? And people are going to see my stuff. And I'm so embarrassed. Why did God do this to me? Now, if the person would have realized 
The Torah doesn't say there's gold and silver in the house, by the way. Rashi says that. The Torah doesn't say it. If the person would know right away that there's gold and silver in the house, he wouldn't do any complaining. He'd say, great, ha, I'm going to be a rich man. Beautiful, no complaints. Because when we know the end of the story, when we know the end of the story, we don't care about the suffering in the beginning because we know the end of the story. And that, perhaps, Rianka Galinsky says, is the story. In other words, the Torah on purpose doesn't want to just point an arrow to help me get gold and silver. The Torah wants to teach me a lesson. You think you know what's going on. You think you got the whole thing figured out. You don't have anything figured out. Nothing is as if as is what it seems. So, for example, um, in the Shema, you have to serve God with your soul, with your heart, with your soul, and bechol ma'oidecha. Some say ma'oidecha means money. The Mishnah says it also means with every measure we receive from God, we have to thank Him. Why? Because we don't know God's plan. You don't know God's plan. You don't know what God wants from you. You don't know what your purpose in this world is. You serve Hashem, as we say, with the hand you're dealt. That you know, reminds me of a story I've said multiple times. Um, so many times my daughter needed a story, and I told her this story. He said, yeah, yeah, I know that story. I said, great. It'll be easy to say over. Okay, we'll say it quick. There's two brothers, and one brother had a lot of issues, a lot of suffering, a lot of things going wrong in life, uh, but he was always a happy guy. So the other brother says, how are you always so happy? Like, how do you live like this? You, you, you don't have an easy life. Why are you always so happy? So he says, look, he says, if, if we were playing a game of cards and you dealt me a hand, it was a losing hand. So do I just stand up and throw the cards down on the table and quit? Or do I play the hand I was dealt? This is the hand God dealt me. This is the life God wants me to live. Why? I have no idea. But this is what God wants. This is the life I'll live. So I saw some fascinating stories this week that, uh, that I would like to go over to, to bring out this point. There's so many stories like this, but, but such an important concept. So here's the first one. Um, beginning of World War II, the Russians took 100 students uh, from the Navarro to Yeshiva and, he sent, and they sent them to Siberia for hard labor. So you can imagine that let's say the student body was 200, and they took 100 students and they shipped them out to Siberia. Everybody knew Siberia was a horrible place. Cold, unbearable, you barely have clothes, you barely have food, you're working in conditions which are ridiculous. So the rest of the school feels terrible for them. What do they do to deserve it? It's so terrible. Lucky me, at least I wasn't taken away. I feel so bad for them, they have it so bad. But then the Nazis moved in, took the rest of that school, and in the end, murdered the whole school. So at the end of the day, um, who had it better? Right? Obviously, the students taken away to Siberia. The problem is that not everything is what it seems. At first, it looked like those hundred students that were sent up to Siberia had it worse than anybody. And instead, God made a plan to save those hundred students. That's the difference, right? In other words, until we see the end of the story, right, we imagine that, you know, we see God did something, we can't understand it, doesn't make sense, we complain, it's terrible, why is God doing this, how could he do this, this person was so good. We don't know the whole story. We do not know the whole story. We're, we're looking at one 
you know, five-minute clip, and we are deciding that we don't understand God's plan and how could God do such a thing, and it's terrible because we don't see the whole picture, right? It's every, that's the point. That's this Torah portion. That's the story with finding Tsaras in the house, that everything is not what it seems. So that leads me to a beautiful, amazing story that I also saw this week. So one of the most influential Orthodox lay leaders, who's not a rabbi, um, of the 20th century was a man, I had a rabbi in front of his name, but he wasn't like a, like a head of a school or a, or a rabbi in that way. His name was Ramesha Sher. Um, he um, basically ran what was called Agudas um, Israel or Agudas Israel, and, and he just was involved in, in all kinds of Orthodox projects. He was a, a force, and he, he did more for um, Orthodox Jewry of the 20th century probably than any single person. He was amazing. As a young boy, he got very sick. He came down with strep. And, the, and in those days, before you know, you had the penicillin and stuff, um, children could get rheumatic fever, people could die. It was a very, very, very bad illness to come down with. And so he's in bed, and he's feverish, and he's listless. So his mother called the doctor, and he said, you got to get this medicine. So, um, so she goes to the, um, to the pharmacy, very poor. In those days, you didn't get to pull out your prescription card. You just get the prescription. It didn't work that way. And uh, so she just gathered any money she could collect in the house, and it wasn't really enough money. She runs to the pharmacy. Now, the owner of the pharmacy was not there at the time. Um, but the assistant was there. So this Mrs. Sharer, this Ramesha Sharer's mother, is begging and pleading with the assistant, please, please, I need you to fill the prescription. This is all the money I have. And, and the assistant felt very bad for her. And he said, fine, this is all the money you have. I'll make the medicine, no problem. So he, he fills the prescription, puts it in a bag, hands it to Mrs. Sharer, and she's so in a rush to get home with this precious medicine that as she's walking down the street, or probably running down the street, she trips. She trips over the curb, and she's watching in horror as the, as the medicine falls out of her hand and breaks. And she couldn't even clean it up. It spills in the bag. It, it's all gone. She, now she has no money. She has no medicine. She is at a complete loss. So she figures, what should she do? She takes the bag. There's really nothing left in the bag. She goes back to the pharmacy. So no money, no medicine. She goes back to the pharmacy, and she uh, she's going to plead for a kid's life because she's afraid the kid will die. So by that time, the pharmacist had returned. So he listens to Mrs. Sherry Saab's stories, and she said, you know, I'll, I'll work in your pharmacy. I'll clean up at night to pay for the medicine. I must have the medicine. So the pharmacist takes the bag with the, with the broken bottle, and he says, okay, let me see what I can do for you. So he goes back to refill the prescription, and a little while later he returns, and he's, his face is white. And the, the pharmacist says to Mrs. Sher, angels are watching over your son. He, he was in awe. He says, I smell the medicine once I open the bag. And my assistant, um, he, he, he mixed the wrong medicines. 
And instead of the medication you were supposed to get, um, that medicine could have killed your child. It would have been a disaster. So you're for sure not paying me. You already paid. And it's a miracle that you, the bottle broke because it would have been a tragedy if you would have given that medicine to your son. So here's the new medicine in a new bag. This is the correct medicine. Don't pay me because you already paid. And uh, I'll deal with my assistant later. And uh, not only that, he said, I think the story goes, he actually returned the original medicine because what she originally paid for was the wrong thing. So what happens? It's again, it's the exact same story we're trying to learn from over here. That what? That everything is not what it seems. When that bag flew out of her hand, she thought her life was over. She couldn't understand. God, I don't have any money. My kid is homesick. She could have just complained. And God, why are you doing this to me? Who knows what a regular person, what kind of thoughts. We do know what thoughts would go through a regular person's head because we know it would go through our own head. In our own head, we'd be sitting there saying, crazy, God, you don't like me, you hate me, you're punishing me, I'm such a good person, why are you doing this to me? That, That is how us normal people think. But we don't see the whole picture. And the whole picture, she went back and found out that that medicine was poison for a kid. So she gets her money back. She gets the right medicine. God took care of it the whole time. So you don't know why God is doing certain things. It should almost be like a mantra. You know, when we do things wrong, when we do things wrong, or which happens all the time, so God does something to us. Our first reaction should not be like, oh, he's crazy, why is God doing this? We should change it a little bit, right? In other words, I don't know why God is doing this to me, but there must be a good reason. God must have a good reason. Either I will find out the good reason, I won't find out the good reason, but a little bit, right? We, we just need to learn that we got to see the whole picture. And sometimes it takes a very, very long time for the full picture. It reminds me of a story with Chavetz Chaim that um, he was in a city and something happened to a guy in his house and the, they, I guess he wasn't paying his rent and they took the roof off his house or something. And they ran to the Chavetz Chaim to tell him the story. He says, you know, I've been waiting, I don't know, 60 years. That family had thrown a widow and orphans into the street because they didn't pay their rent. And I wondered what God was going to do. I just, I always wondered, what is God going to do? And uh, it took 60 years. But that same family just got thrown into the street. Their roof taken off their house, equivalent to being thrown into the street. God doesn't forget Maybe he doesn't uh, act when you are ready, when you want, but God doesn't forget. Okay, one more quick story about this whole um, story and uh, these stories I'm telling you, and then we'll try, if we have extra time, get into a different part of the Torah portion. Okay, so one more story. The story goes like this. Um, There was a very, very weak student, and his friends, you know, felt bad. He wasn't scholastic, he... He wasn't really intelligent, and the friends never knew, how is he ever going to make a penny? How is he ever going to get money? So it seems there was this raffle, and uh, you had to get three numbers right, and you had three numbers right, and you won like 5,000 ruble, which was, uh, I know now Russia wants ruble. They want everybody to buy stuff in ruble. Fine. I don't know what now's ruble is worth, but I guess in those days, 5,000 ruble was a lot of money, certainly for, uh, for these teenagers. So the friend said, well, you won. How'd you win the raffle? 
tell you what happened, the lottery, whatever. So I'll tell you what happened. I had a dream. And in the dream, I dreamt the numbers 17, 18, and 370. That those are the winning numbers for the lottery. Okay, 17, 18, and 370. So they said to him, hello, that's, uh, that's seven numbers. You're right. He said, very good. I also knew that seven numbers, so it can't be 17, 18, 370. Cannot be um, the full answer. I figured that I had to add the numbers together, and I added the numbers together, and, uh, and I got 415, and sure enough, 415 won. So he said, that's really very nice, except 17 plus 18 is 35. 35 plus 370 is 405. So if you would have added the numbers properly, you would have got 405. Why did you put down 415? He said, I got to tell you the truth. I'm a very weak student. And uh, you see, it's good I'm a weak student because I added it wrong. And since I added it wrong, I got the right number and I won the lottery. Okay, fine. Adorable. Um, and anyways... That was lesson one we've been working on for this first part of the show, almost the whole show, is things are not what they seem, and we need to recognize things are not what they seem. We think we, what we think could be good maybe could end up being not so good. What we think is, very, is bad a lot of times may turn out to actually be very, very good. You just have to have the patience to figure it out. Okay. Now I want to get into another part of this Torah portion, and that is um, in, the, in the process to purify the Mitzorah. So we talked on the last show a lot. Uh, the Kohen will, will check it out and will, will work with the person and, and they'll see and decide. And finally, the Kohen will proclaim, yes, unfortunately, you have this saras, you have this leprosy, you have to leave the camp. And every once in a while, the Kohen would go out to check and say, you know, uh, you're repenting, you need stuff, you're studying properly, let's see if the saras is, uh, is healing. And when the tzaras finally heals, when this leprosy finally goes away, um, so there's a process. Part one of the process is we take two birds. One bird is slaughtered, and one bird is then dipped into that blood and then sent away. That is part of the purification process. Okay, so the obvious question is the concept of sacrifices, all these Torah portions— I told him about the concept of, uh, of purification, of, I'm sorry, of sacrifices. So we get this idea that we slaughter an animal, slaughter a bird, and that's the process that God wants uh, to, to get, help me get my forgiveness, whatever I need to do. But what's this second bird being sent free? What's going on? So there's multiple lessons. The most famous lesson, I believe, is just like a bird, when you send it away, you can't catch it. Reminds me of my sister. Um, she wanted to take a picture of a bird. So my father had his fancy camera, and he said, you can't take a picture of the bird with this camera. You're too far away. No, 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 I could. He says, go ahead. Uh, she's running after the bird and running. That bird is flying, and she's running, and uh, she didn't get a picture. All right, so slander is so too slander. When I slander, not me, but when a person slanders, you can't take the words back. Once those words, Once those words leave your mouth... You cannot get them back. So, too, that's the lesson of the bird. You send away this bird, it's not coming back. Um, the second lesson that I saw this week is fascinating. A person, you know, this Mitzorah, this guy who got saras because he spoke um, improperly, 
he could come out of this whole ordeal and say, you know what? Talking is bad. That's the lesson he learned. Talk is bad. If I don't talk, I don't get punished. If I do talk, I do get punished. Talk is bad. So the lesson is not true. There's two birds here. One is bad. I mean, it's the birds. That was not bad. One gets killed. One is slaughtered. One is set free to teach me that there's good speech and there's bad speech. You could be friendly. You could talk nicely. You could help somebody when they're in a situation. You could just be there as a friend. You could study Torah. You could give good advice. There's lots of good talk. You could have a podcast where you say nice things. Right? There's, there, there is good speech also. We don't want a person to stop talking. We just want a person to stop slandering. Right? And the bird that goes away, the, the bird that's killed represents the slander. And the bird that goes away represents the, the good side of the equation. They actually say with the Chavetz Chaim, he's, that's the name of his book, he's famous uh, for writing the first law book on what qualifies as slander and what is not slander. So it's interesting, after writing such a book, you would imagine he would be a very quiet person. But in truth, he talked a lot because he wanted people to know you could talk. You just have to know what you could say. And I hope you enjoyed it short and sweet. Thank you, of course, to all our wonderful sponsors and listeners. You know, I can't do it without you. Thank you on the production team. We have David, Cisco, and Andy in the back. I hope I've left you with some food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRS Streamcast. Until next time, don't forget to think about it.